0: If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Philippians, and let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our mind and our understanding to your word. We pray, oh God, that you would give us wisdom that would direct our lives, that would lead us into lives that are marked by fulfillment and human flourishing, and that are lived to your honor and glory. And so we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would come now among us and work in our hearts through the preaching of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a new series last week on the subject of happiness entitled, A Happy New Year. And of course, the way that we are using the word happiness in this series is not in that superficial sort of way, as in, I love to eat Mother Moose salty chocolate ice cream because it makes me so happy. And for the record, Mother Moo's salty chocolate ice cream makes me very, very happy. But we're not using happiness in that sense, but rather we're using the word happiness in a more classic sense of the word as in well-being and contentment and peace and delight in life and human flourishing. Uh, this is the way that the great, uh, the, the great philosophers, the great thinkers throughout the history of the world have used the word happiness. And it is the, it is the idea that the, the biblical authors use when they talk about the word joy. And so my sincere hope is that throughout this series that you will grab a hold of a certain amount of practices and habits that will enable your life to actually experience more happiness and joy in this next year, hence the title, A Happy New Year. Now, one of the things that you might find interesting if you're new to Christianity and the Bible is that when you open up the Bible, one of the things that you discover about God is that God is eternally happy. And for some of us, this might be surprising. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was preaching at the church that I was pastoring in Albuquerque. And in the middle of my sermon, through a glitch in the system, uh, this image of the face of Christ emerged in the middle of the sermon. And uh, after the, the, the service, uh, one of my daughters came up to me and they said, Daddy, why did that picture of Jesus emerge in the middle of the sermon? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And then she said, and why was Jesus frowning at us? And I think for a lot of us, we have the sense that God is frowning at us, that he is unhappy, you know, um, that although God is holy, God is not very happy. But in the scriptures, you discover something very, very different. The Bible says that in God's presence, get this, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, the Bible reveals a God who is the infinite and unbounding source of happiness. I mean, could you imagine what would it be like to be, for for all of eternity, to be immersed in the sea of God's infinite joy? In his presence is fullness of joy. And get this, when God created us, he created us so that we might share in his joy, in his happiness. In fact, one of the fruits of people who are in relationship with God, according to scripture, is joy. And Jesus said he came in order that he might turn our sorrow into joy, a joy that would never end. And one of Jesus's followers said, "I want you all to be in a relationship with God so that your joy may be full." In other words, God wants you and I to be happy. And so, throughout this series we're asking the question, "How can you, how can I this year tap into the joy, into the happiness of God? And this is an important question for us to ask, because as Pastor Robert pointed out last week, uh, we as human beings are not good at knowing what will make us happy. You know, there is a, 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 a cognitive psychologist from Harvard, whose name was Daniel Gilbert. And and his area of expertise is on this whole subject of human happiness. He's done a lot of research, a lot of study on this topic. And one of the things that he points out in his research is that our imaginations are ill-equipped for predicting our future emotional states. In other words, you are not good at knowing what the circumstances in your life are that you will experience in the future, you're not good at knowing about how those will actually make you feel. And he says that most of us are good at knowing what we want and what we don't want, but what we're not very good at is knowing how we will experience life when we get what we want and what we don't want. And so, for example, if I sat down with you and I asked you, what do you want I mean, just rattle off some of the things that you want. I bet most of you would be able to answer that question pretty quickly. Well, I want a new iPhone 11. I'd like to go on vacation to Hawaii. I'd like a new Tesla Model X. I want a steak dinner tonight. And if I asked you what you don't want, you'd probably be able to answer that question. You know, I don't want while I'm out surfing to be eaten by a shark. Uh, I don't, you know, you might not want to be dumped by your boyfriend or to lose your job, and you want the use of your legs. And he said, "We're, We're great at knowing what we want and what we don't want, but what we're not very good at is knowing how we will experience life once we get what we want and what we don't want. See, we are terrible predictors at our own future happiness, knowing our own uh, future happiness. And to kind of illustrate this, uh, Daniel Gilbert actually gives this list. He gives a series of examples as an anecdotal way of um, kind of like making this point that we are not good at predicting what will make us happy. And so the first example comes from a man named Jim Wright. And some of you might remember Jim Wright. He was the chairman of the House of Representatives. He was the most powerful Democrat in the House. And at one point, he was caught up in a scandal. He was shamed publicly, and he lost everything. And in an interview a little bit later in his life, he he made this statement. He said, quote, I am so much better off. I am so much better off physically, financially, mentally, and in almost every way. So he's kind of got all the bases covered there, doesn't he? And then he goes on, he gives another example, Maurice Bickham. And some of you may not know who this is, but he spent 37 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And after he was released from prison in an interview, he said this, I don't have a minute's regret. It was, quote, a glorious experience. I don't have a minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. And then he points out, he points to Harry S. Longerman. And Harry S. Longerman, uh, decades ago, was invited to invest $10,000 into a new startup company called McDonald's. And he denied, he didn't want to invest in this because his brother said that there was no future in hamburgers. And so they interviewed him about 60 years later, and he said, quote, I believe that it turned out for the best. Fourth example is Pete Best. Uh, does anybody know who Pete Best is? He was actually the original drummer for the Beatles. And he got fired or something from his job. And then they hired, of course, Ringo Starr, you know, the great Ringo Starr. Well, Pete Best was asked in an interview kind of about missing out on uh, kind of this job with the Beatles. And he said this. He says, quote, I am happier than I would have been with the Beatles. And uh, Daniel Gilbert says, look, he says, there is something profoundly important about happiness that we learn from each of the examples. He says, here it is. Listen. He says, here is the secret to your happiness. Number one, accrue wealth, power, and prestige, and then lose everything. Two, spend as much of your life as possible in prison. Three, make someone else really, really rich, (laughs) And then four, never, ever, whatever you do, don't ever join the Beatles. And so he says, if you follow these four steps, you will be happy. He says, of course, what this reveals is that we human creatures are notoriously bad about predicting what will make us happy. Our imaginations are ill-equipped for for predicting our future emotional states. And so he suggests a better tool than your own imagination. And here's his better tool. He says a better tool for predicting what certain future experiences in your life will produce for you is to ask the experience of others. He says, listen to the report of others who are happy, and he says, listen to them, and he says, when you listen to and you trust the reports of people who are happy, you have a better chance at actually hitting the target of happy in your own life. And so what we're doing in this little short series called A Happy New Year is we actually are consulting the reports of another person who was incredibly happy. Actually, uh, we are looking together over these three short weeks at a book that is arguably the happiest book in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. And it was written by arguably one of the happiest people in the first century world, the Apostle Paul. And we're asking the question: What is it about this man? What is it in his life that actually produced happiness? And we're seeking to garner, to learn from him about happiness. And I'll just give you kind of a window in what I have done in preparation for this series: is I have kind of poured over the book of Philippians, asking this simple question: Paul, from whence the happy? How did you get so happy? Why in spite of your circumstances, why are you so joyful? You know, it's been said that if you don't talk to your Bible, your Bible won't talk to you. And a good way to actually kind of like discern what the scripture teaches is to ask it a good question. And here's what I'd encourage you to do. Here's what I've done is go through the book of Philippians and just ask the question, why is this guy so happy? And study it and see if you can discern from it. Now, in in my own study, I've basically discerned three kind of main areas that that make up each one of the sermons that, that we're looking at in this series. And it can be summarized in the old acronym, JOY. Has anybody heard this? I remember my grandmother taught me this. And it might sound a little bit trite and cliche to you. And I think it is a little bit trite and cliche. And so if you're a cynic in the house, just ignore this for a minute. But you know, they they say, how do you get happy? Well, joy. Number one, Jesus, Jay. Number two, others, you know, and then finally, yourself. You got to focus on Jesus and then others and then yourself, last of all, and there is happiness. And so uh, last week, we looked with Pastor Robert about kind of Paul being a man whose life was focused on Jesus. For me, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Next week, we're going to be talking about ourselves and specifically your mind and what you give your thoughts to and how that has an impact on your own experience of happiness. But this morning, what we're going to talk about is how when we live a life that is focused not on self but on others we will hit the target of happy. And so I want to talk to you about living a others-centered life. And I want to look at this underneath three headings. We're going to see that from Paul, what we're going to see is that his life was focused, number one, on serving others, number two, on befriending others, and number three, on partnering with others. And what I want you to see is that when you sacrificially serve others, you cultivate rich friendships with others, and you partner with others in projects and purposes of God that are bigger than yourself, you will discover more joy in your life in 2020. And so let's kind of look at each one of these from the book of Philippians. The first thing that I want you to see is that Paul was actively involved in sacrificially serving others, and here is where he found his joy. And notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, and even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So here he opens up his life and he shares with us at least one of the areas where he found joy and it was in having his life poured out, he says, as a sacrificial offering for you. And what he's doing here is he's drawing upon the rich kind of evocative uh, metaphors from the Old Testament of animal sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, what uh, the people of God would often do if they wanted to really, you know, um, if they either wanted to atone for their sins or maybe just give a great Thanksgiving offering to God is they would take uh, one of their animals and they would present it to God as a sacrifice in, in a way of saying, I'm giving my full self to you. And Paul says, my life is like that animal. I am being offered as a sacrifice for you, Philippian church. And he says, and here I am finding joy. I'm finding joy in giving my life as a sacrifice for others. And from the the Apostle Paul, what we're learning here is at least this, that one of the quickest ways to experience happiness is to give your life away for others. And one of the surest ways to lose your happiness is to be absorbed only in yourself. Or we could put it like this. As long as your life is only about you, you can never be happy. As long as your life is only about you, you can never be happy. Or as uh, Albert Schweitzer put it, does anybody know who Albert Schweitzer is? Albert Schweitzer was uh, this guy who, um, about 100 years ago or so, he was um, a professional musician. He had a PhD in theology and graduated with a, with a medical degree all before he was age 30. And, Jonathan, what have you done? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Jonathan. And what have I done now at 45, you know? Uh, but here he's got a medical degree, he's, um, he, he is, uh, he's a professional musician, a brilliant pianist, and he's got a theology degree. And at the age 30, he gave up all of his privilege, all of his status, and he went into the deepest jungles of Africa to live his life as a medical missionary. And he said this, the only ones among you to be really happy are those who have sought and found out how to serve others. Or as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And of course, that word blessed, it simply means it is more happy to give than to receive. Now, at this point, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know by your experience, am I? I mean, haven't you found that when you are absorbed in yourself, when you're only thinking about self and your problems, when you're walking around, you know, like, uh, like that little song I learned when I was a child singing, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, think I'll eat some worms. Remember this one? Big, fat, juicy ones, skinny, scrawny, scrawny ones, itsy, bitsy, witsy, witsy, worms. Bite their head off, suck their guts out, throw away the skin. All together, let's sing. Yes. <laughs> You know, I've done a lot of reading about the subject of happiness, you know, from some of the kind of academic research on it, and one of the surprising things that's found in in the research is this, is, look, you cannot acquire or consume or success or accumulate your way to happiness. Everybody agrees that with that. Everybody says look, um, it is not, you know, to a certain degree your standard of living does have an impact on your happiness, but it's 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 like once you reach $70,000 a year, whatever kind of lower to uh, middle class to middle class life is, after that it really has no material impact on a person's happiness. And so all the research says you cannot acquire, consume, or success, or accumulate your way to happiness. But what the research consistently shows on happiness is what the Apostle Paul found. It's what Jesus taught. It's that you can volunteer and serve your way to happiness. There was a study that showed that, of course, you know, the most fulfilling jobs and careers uh, were not the ones that gave you the most money or the most prestige, but they were the careers, they were the jobs that involved serving others and caring for others and protecting others and teaching others. And, you know, if you are in that life stage where you're in college and you're thinking about careers, you might think about careers in that vein. Like, where can I give my life away for something bigger than my life? Not what career will make me the most money. There was another series of studies that... um, Uh, that referenced what the authors called, quote, the helper's high. And it talks about how giving to charity actually triggers a portion in your brain responsible for good feelings. And so when you give to charity, your brain releases feel-good chemicals. And haven't you found this to be the case? I mean, when you actually give money away to something that you feel like is important and significant, like you didn't want to, but then you gave it away, you felt good. It actually releases feel-good chemicals. Uh, UC Berkeley published an article on what they called, quote, the activism cure, which basically said that the best way to cure depression is to give your life away in service to others, to try to pull yourself out of your self-absorption and to get involved in focusing on the needs of others. There was another uh, academic article that drew together 40 different studies on happiness and it, it, it demonstrated it from these 40 different studies the connection between volunteering and public health. And it said that even teenagers who served unwillingly that were engaged in the studies had lower unplanned pregnancies and drug problems. And so, of course, the point is, is to get yourself out of yourself and to focus on the needs of others. This is Paul. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, I am, I'm doing it for your faith, he says, and it is bringing me great joy. Now, of course, I'm not telling you something that you don't already know, that you haven't already experienced, right, in your own life. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us because the smartest person to ever walk the planet, which is, class, Jesus, Jesus, who is the expert on human psychology said, the way you find your life is to lose it. To live, you must first die. So listen, maybe you're, in a, you're, you're here this morning and you have been struggling with your own anxieties and fears, depression, a sadness, maybe boredom with life. Here's what I want to challenge you in 2020 is spend some time pulling out of your absorption on yourself and fixate your mind, your thinking, your attention on others and their own problems and how, and asking the question, how can I serve this other person and be a benefit to them? You know, sometimes you come to church and you walk away disappointed because nobody talked to me. Nobody was nice to me. People were not warm enough to me. Well, how about if you came to church and instead of walking away with disappointment because of what people failed to do, you chose to be the change you would like to see. And you actually were that force that looked out for the needs of others and engaged with them. And you looked for needs and you sought to meet those needs. And so Paul is is revealing to us in this letter, he's saying, look, I am rejoicing as I am sacrificially serving and giving my life for others. And so number one, how was it that Paul was finding joy and happiness in the midst of his own life when his circumstances were not ideal. He was in prison. Uh, He was chained up to Roman guards. His own plans and dreams for his life had kind of been crushed. Why? Well, he he found joy in sacrificially serving others. And here's where you and I can find joy as well. But secondly, I want you to see, he didn't just sacrificially serve others. But secondly, he befriended those he served. He befriended others. (laughs) Friendship actually became for him a deep source of joy. And I want you to just to turn over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And I want to just point something out here. And what I want you to see at this point is that Paul here in this passage, he reveals that he didn't just serve, he also received. He didn't just give his way, his life away for others, he also received from others. And this also became for him a source of joy. Notice what he says in verse. 10, he says, I rejoiced greatly. Why? Because now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And then he says a little bit later, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Now, a little background might be helpful at this point. Uh, Paul is speaking here, he's alluding here to financial support that the church had given him. Paul was experiencing financial need and difficulty in his own life. The church became aware of this need, and they sent some resources in order to support him. Now, what's fascinating about this is Paul, throughout his letters, almost never receives financial support from anyone. Instead, he supported himself through working with his own hands. He was a tent maker. And typically, if he felt like there was going to be a strings attached relationship with a church, he wouldn't receive any uh, money from them. I remember my old uh, mentor, senior pastor, was telling me one time about this lady who walked into his office and she was complaining about some stuff in the church. And she said, You know, I tied to this church. And the way I see it, that's like a tax that I'm paying. And so you are accountable to me because I tithe. And he said, woman, I don't want your money. You can keep it. And this was Paul. He didn't want strings attached relationships. But where he did receive help was from people who he counted as his genuine, true friends. And this was the church in Philippi. You know, it's fascinating. um, In this uh, book, well, we call it a book, but Philippians is is actually a letter. And in the ancient world, how was it that they communicated with each other? Well, they did so through letters. You couldn't text, you couldn't email, you had to sit down and write a letter. And it's interesting because in the ancient world, there's, um, there is a, a manual that reveals some 21 different letter forms. And when you study Paul's letters, his letters uh, oftentimes reveal different characteristics of different uh, form types from the ancient world. Well, there's one form type that's called the friend letter. And what's fascinating is that none of Paul's letters actually fit this qualifications. None of them except for one. It's the letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi because these were his friends. And you see in this letter one of the richest, one of the warmest expressions of affection and friendship that you find in the entire New Testament. It's found in the passage we heard read for us in chapter one. And look at what he says here. By the way, just to set this passage up, when I was uh, graduating from high school, I was about to go away to Bible college, and we had some friends in our youth group who called into the local uh, Christian radio station and requested that a song be played to us to kind of send us off. And do you know what song they chose to have played for us from this Christian radio station in the early 90s? Michael W. Smith, that's right, Friends Are Friends Forever. Forever. If you're from the early 90s, you were around back then, and a friend of friends forever, if the Lord's the Lord of them. Yeah, anyway, let's all sing it. Michael W. Smith, you say, I never heard that song. Don't worry, you didn't miss anything. (laughs) I'm just kidding, just kidding. No, I'm not. Um, Heresy, heresy, somebody says. But they had that song played, and then they read this passage. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer for you with joy why because of your partnership in the your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. But do you hear in that passage just this deep, this meaningful, this abiding expression of friendship and warmth? But what I want you to see, it is... That it was this deep friendship that he had, this partnership, this mutual, interdependent relationship that he had with this church that for him was a source of deep joy. And I find this fascinating um, in part because oftentimes when you're like the Apostle Paul and you have a lot to offer... Like, you are the dynamic Bible preacher, church planner, New Testament writer. Like, when you have all of these great gifts, like the Apostle Paul did, oftentimes you can present, like, I don't have any needs. I am here to help you. I am God's gift to this church. But this was not his posture. He recognized that he also had needs, and he was vulnerable enough to let them in on his needs. And if all you are is a hero, you're only the one who's always just giving and giving and serving, but you never allow other people to love you and to care for you, you are gonna miss out on some joy that the Apostle Paul knew here. A joy that came from an interdependent, mutually beneficial, rich and vibrant friendship. It was this friendship that was a deep source of joy for him. You could say this, happiness is more... About a who than a what. Our happiness is way, way, way more about a who, or maybe you could say a who or two if you're like Dr. Seuss. It's more about a who than a what. It is more dependent upon you investing in and developing rich and meaningful friendships and relationships with other people than it is with you accruing experiences and products. Now listen, we need to take note of this very, very well because we live in a culture that is incessantly bombarding us with the message that if you want to be safe and happy, you just need another product. And so you need to save up more money. You need to retain more money. You need to keep more money because then if you don't, there's not going to be enough for you to get the new phone or the new Tesla or to go on the vacation. And you need more and more because these are the things that are going to make you happy. And of course, the products and all of the marketing are framed. Uh, they're always connected with images that we associate with happiness in life. So somebody opens up you know, a cheap can of beer you know, on a TV commercial, and all of a sudden, there's a big party. Everyone's happy. When you know full well. It's just Budweiser. (laughs) But this is the lie we are taught in our culture, that more products, more stuff will make you more happy, and it is a lie. And I know you know that, but so often you and I don't live that way. We don't use our money that way. We don't use our time that way. We don't choose our careers that way. We, we We don't welcome in neighbors that way knowing that what we need actually to enrich our life in 2020 are deeper and more meaningful and abiding relationships. This is where Paul was found. He says, in every prayer of mine with you all, making my prayer with joy. It's like, you are an unearned gift from God, and you bring me such great joy. You know, I was listening to a lecture, uh, this time from a Harvard psychiatrist, and he was giving oversight to the Harvard study of adult development, and this is interesting. This was a 75-year-long study conducted on 724 adults, and so they were with the same, they they followed the same group of adults over a 75-year period, and half of the adults they studied were from Harvard, and the other half were from an inner city in Brooklyn. And later, uh, the study included the wives and the children of the 724 adults. And I was reading kind of some of the, the report on this, and they said the primary finding, like the primary most secure finding that they, they, they learned from this study, this long study of human adult development was this, good relationships keep us happier and healthier. You didn't need that study to know that, did you? <laughs> like, you knew that. But the, the psychiatrist writes this, he says, social connections are good for us and loneliness kills. People who are more socially connected are happier and healthier and live longer and experience, and the experience of loneliness is toxic. And some of us know that all too well. And so Paul opens up his own life. He gives us a window into his own heart. And he says, look, I, I'm developed this deep. I've been vulnerable. I've let these people into my life. I've shared with them my needs. I've served them. I know where they're at. I'm praying for them. I love them. I speak truth to them. I feel affectionately for them. And this seed, this soil of, of all these qualities is actually producing great joy in my life. And listen, if you want to know joy, you've got to spend time cultivating your relationships. Now, a little application before we move on to our last point. You know, at our church, we have something that we call community groups. And very often in churches, you know, that have things, uh, community groups, uh, sometimes they're small groups or grow groups or life groups or whatever nomenclature they happen to apply to the program at church. And very often, uh, churches spend a lot of time trying to encourage people like you all to get involved in one of these groups. And you've heard us tell you to get involved in a community group. And I can remember listening to a pitch for community groups at uh, 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 a church I was at. And I remember the guy got up and he said, you got to get into one of these groups because this is where we develop deep and meaningful relationships. This is where we deeply connect together. You know, this is where we share life together. We get into each other's business. And then you go to one of these groups and there's a disconnect from how it was marketed and sold and what your experience was. Because it it turns out that it takes more than to finally sign up and to attend a group with 20 or 30 or 40 people for one night or two nights. Uh, It takes more to actually cultivate relationships, doesn't it? And you all know that. Choosing to be a part of a community group or, you know, a men's group or a women's group or a Sunday school class, that's just one choice. That's the first of many other choices you're going to have to make if you're actually going to grow deeper in Christian community and relationships and friendships. You're going to have to make a choice to go back after you had multiple awkward conversations last time you were there. You're gonna to have to make a choice to go back when you're kind of feeling just You're gonna to have to make a choice to actually invite somebody into the group over to dinner at your house, and then out to coffee, and to, to get together for a drink and to talk, and to you're gonna to have to actually continue to work hard and to go deep. And then you're gonna to have to make a choice to open up and expose your own life to people, to be honest with them. If people don't are not let into the real you. It is terribly unsatisfying because then the whole relationship is built on a facade. And so if you want to develop the kind of relationships that actually contribute to your joy, you need to make lots of different choices that ultimately will be difficult at times and will cause you, it will make you'll have to make a choice. I'm not gonna give up, I'm gonna keep pursuing this until you actually start to develop more and more. You're on the road to developing deeper relationships with others. And so, number one, what are we seeing from Paul? Number one, I want you to see that he served others. Secondly, he befriended others. But then thirdly and finally, I want you to see that he partnered with others. So he served his friends, and then he received from his friends, but he also partnered together with his friends in something larger than himself. And this for him was a source of great joy. And I want you to see it in chapter one, verse three again. Look at what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Why, class? Because of your, together, partnership in the gospel. That word partnership is the Greek word koinonia that is often translated fellowship. Now, question. When you hear the word fellowship, what comes to your mind? Coffee Coffee and donuts, baby. (laughs) Potlucks. But listen, when you hear fellowship, don't think coffee and donuts. When you hear fellowship in the New Testament sense of the word, think the Lord of the Rings. On the plane yesterday, coming home, I watched again the Fellowship of the Ring One of my daughters said to me, Dad, why do you just keep watching the same movies again and again? And when they make a better movie, I'll watch it. (laughs) But what is the Fellowship of the Ring about? Well, on one level, it is about a quest to destroy the ring of power and defeat Lord Sauron and the forces of darkness in Middle-earth. But on another level, the Fellowship of the Ring, the Lord of the Ring, it's about friendship. It's about friendship of of Legolas the elf with Gimli the dwarf and Gandalf the wizard and these four hobbits and Aragorn uh, the king who doesn't quite know his identity yet. And it's a story about how this larger quest that they were a part of, that they partnered together on, actually drove their relationships deeper together. And, of course, this is what happens in all of the great stories, all of the great stories about all of the great quests. Like, it's always about a friendship. You know, you think about Star Wars, and what is Star Wars about? Well, it was about, you know, defeating the evil empires, whichever one surfaces at different times. But it was also about friendship, the friendship of Han and Leia and Luke and Chewbacca and the droids. And I don't even know the names of the new characters. I've seen all three films. I still don't know their names. Because the friendship wasn't as powerful. But it's a quest when you're involved in something larger than yourself that this deeper relationship develops. And Paul is saying, look, I have been captivated by the news that the God of Israel, the creator of all things, in an act of shocking love and beauty has entered into the world in Jesus Christ. And through his own sacrificial death on the cross, through his victorious resurrection from the dead, he has defeated the power of sin and death and darkness. And he is liberating slaves and he is freeing people who who are in darkness. He is bringing light. He is on the move in this world. And Paul says, I have been captivated by this incredible news of what God is doing. And and he has been, he has then partnered together with the Philippian church to together participate in this grand plan. And friends, you know what's so cool about what we have an opportunity to be a part of as a church? We are not just plain religion when we come together as a people? We are participants in the great drama of cosmic history. The God who created everything has defeated darkness in Jesus Christ and he is on the move in this world to bring this good news to everyone, to to bring his love to bear in every sphere of human existence and he's inviting us to join with him, to band together and to support one another in this project. That's incredible, isn't it? Like, you know, I I love The Office and the friendship that's developed on The Office. You guys know The Office, the best TV show, that's developed in the last two decades. But you know, the office, the the thing that it's lacking is a narrative. (laughs) Like, what is it about? (laughs) Paper. (laughs) There's no drama, there's no cosmic drama. And for many human beings, that's what, there's no cosmic drama, but there is. God is at work in this world and he invites us to join him and together to partner together. And in partnering together in something larger than ourselves, this great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, we find joy. And so he's invited us to partner together in this great drama. And Paul says, we have partnered together. And we have been vulnerable with each other. We, we, I've served you, and you've served me, and I've received it. And, and we are, we're moving forward. And he says, look, this life that is marked by sacrificial service, that's marked by deep and meaningful friendship, that is marked by this great partnership in something larger than ourselves, he says, this is all contributing to my joy. Now, listen, let me just land the plane. I got to land the plane, Right? Don't say it so enthusiastically. <laughs> Somebody tell me, keep flying, brother Josh. <laughs> you know, I I was listening to another academic from Los Angeles. Uh, I think she was maybe at UCLA or something, and, and her... Academic work is, again, focused on kind of the science of happy, the science of well-being. And she points out in her research that a decent chunk of human well-being and happiness is dependent on your genetics. It's personality-driven. And then she says there's a very, very small, small, much smaller than most people realize. It's dependent upon your circumstances, whether you got the job, didn't get the job, whether you got, you know, attacked by the shark or you didn't get attacked by the shark. I don't know why I threw that out there. <laughs> a deep-seated fear I have, apparently. <laughs> but she said there, there's a significant portion of our individual happiness, like a w- really significant chunk, that is, has nothing to do with our circumstances and is not dependent upon genetics or personality type. Rather, it is dependent upon the choices you are making. And I think what what Paul is challenging us with in this letter is to make different choices in 2020 that pull us away from self-absorption, that pull us away from a me-centered life, a life that's mostly about entertaining ourselves with another clip on YouTube, with another video game, uh, another television show, another movie, another product, another, like that is leaving us dead as a culture. And he's saying, make choices to live lives of significance, where you're actually surrounding yourself with deep, meaningful relationships and you're choosing to be vulnerable and open yourself up. You're, You're partnering together with others in something larger than yourself, the mission of God, and you are serving others. He says, make choices this year and you will have a happier new year. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and, Father, we ask that you would save us from our own poor decisions, our own poor thinking that is so toxic and that is killing us. God, we pray that you would pull us out of all of that and that you would strengthen us by your Spirit. And through the wisdom of your son, Jesus, that we might live lives that result in true joy. God, we pray that you would expose places in our life where we've looked to other things to make us happy, and it's been a lie. And we pray, oh God, that you would point us to the truth that is found in your son, Jesus, that the way we find our lives is to lose it. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would now work among us and turn our sorrow into joy, into a joy that is eternal and that never ends. And we ask this in your name, Christ. Amen.